This is a special edition of the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast, featuring a discussion from the recent Future of Force conference. This panel focuses on the future of warfare technology and is moderated by Rebecca Herzman, Director of the Project on Nuclear Issues and Senior Advisor in the International Security Program at CSIS. It's a pleasure to uh, welcome you to this panel um, on uh, the future of warfare and technology. My name is Rebecca Herzman. I'm the Director of the Project on Nuclear Issues here at CSIS and a Senior Advisor in the International Security Program and uh, absolutely thrilled to uh, join you all on an incredible day of, of programming. Uh, so, um, so thrilled to get this next part going. And uh, in this current session, we are gonna sort of dig into the hardware, uh, recognizing that all hardware has a software component. And I think we're gonna sort of address that as we, as we talk about the issues on the table. Uh, today's panel, uh, the tools of future warfare technology, will feature a discussion on how we should be thinking about emerging technologies when we're crafting uh, defense and foreign policy. We're gonna talk some about the domains of military-related technologies, where things are emerging, whether it's from cyber to other elements of, of the changing technology space. Um, we're gonna look at those areas with the most significant and rapid innovation, some of the challenges that poses to both to the US military and to the way we perceive uh, the environment around us, those threats and challenges that we see in our security environment. Um, we're gonna be talking about both our own capabilities and highlighting what might be facing us from potential adversaries. Um, and the extent to which we may be well or poorly prepared. So that's a lot of ground to cover. So I will briefly uh, introduce our terrific panelists today. And uh, then we're just gonna dive right into a conversation. Um, I'll have that conversation for a bit. I have the pleasure of, of doing it for a while myself and then we'll invite you to participate as well. So first, who do we have up here today? Um, we have uh, Kate Charlotte. Director uh, of Technology and International, the Technology and International Affairs Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Kate served as Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Cyber Policy. She's a recipient of the Secretary of Defense Meritorious Civilian Service, and she served in a variety of senior advisory roles uh, throughout the department. Um, and so it's a pleasure to welcome her back. We knew when she was at the Pentagon. Um, I have. Dr. Lindsay Kahn, and uh, she is an associate professor at the U.S. Naval War College. Previously, Lindsay served as assistant to the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Combating Terrorism. She has a long uh, academic and policy-oriented background in a number of different assignments across Europe. So again, has sort of examines the U.S. from a U.S. perspective, but with a much more a broader uh, European and international lens, which I think will really help us in this conversation. And then we also have Dr. Rupal Mehta, the Assistant uh, Professor of Political Science and International Affairs at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and she is a member of the University of Nebraska's National Strategic Research Institute and the University of California San Diego Center for Pacific Studies. So again, well qualified. So I think we'll sort of dive right into the conversation. Emerging technologies bring tremendous opportunity to the US military, military advantage, precision, but also tremendous risk. Stability risks, unintended consequences, uh, exploitable vulnerabilities, or advancing capabilities of adversaries that may exceed our own. So as you look across the horizon in this emerging technology space, and you think about the intersections of emerging technology and modern warfare, what do you see as the greatest risks or challenges, and what do you see as the greatest opportunity, and I'd like to ask all three of you, uh, all three of you, that, and um, perhaps uh, who wants to go first? Sure. Kate, you want to dive in? All right. Sure. Um, and I have the great uh, honor and challenge of uh, working in my program on a really wide range of technologies: um, cyber policy, biotechnology, and artificial intelligence. So I'm going to try to find a way to get all three into the all answer right. uh, to, the, to this question. You can't so, pick just one. Um, can't pick. 
Um, so one of the things that really excites me, um, uh, especially with regard to cybersecurity and uh, enabling uh, the Department of Defense um, and coalition partners to assure their missions from cyber threats, is uh, AI-driven automation in network defense. Um, right now, the uh, attacker in cyberspace really holds a significant advantage over the defender. Um, it only takes one click of an email uh, to gain access to a system, um, whereas defenders have to be right all the time. Um, but there's a lot of kind of really exciting things coming down in terms of automated network defenses. Um, uh, the DARPA uh, recently had a cyber grand challenge where instead of pitting two teams uh, against one another, they pitted two automate, you know, automated um, uh, defenders and attackers. Um, and the entire competition was automated. Um, so given that the Department of Defense uh, and militaries have such huge vulnerabilities and opportunities uh, for intrusion, um, the ability to maybe tip the scales in favor of network defenders instead of in favor of uh, the attacker is uh, really exciting to me. That's gonna take a huge amount of work to actually accomplish given that some of the same tools um, driven by machine learning are also going to really benefit hackers who are trying to get in and make it easier for them uh, to, uh, to find uh, ways to get into systems. Um, what worries me a lot uh, is in regard to the norms arena um, and in particular biotechnology norms. Uh, and biological weapons norms. We've seen recently, um, uh, you know, the the kind of trajectory, the concerning trajectory of norms for chemical weapons, whether that's VX being used to kill Kim Jong Un's half brother, whether it's uh, Syria. Um, Putin has also, you know, this, this is a while back, but in in 2012 talked about the need to leverage um, uh, genetic principles in when they're uh, looking at new weapons. Um, so given that in the bio, biological weapons area, norms are so central in light of the difficulty of verification and inspection, um, I would really hate to see us go down a similar path on uh, biological area. Lots of good things to keep talking about as we go. Lindsay, would you like to go next? Sure. Thanks very much uh, for having us and for sticking with us through the day. Um, in terms of uh, opportunity, so I'll, uh, disclaimer, uh, two disclaimers. Um, nothing that I say is uh, representative of the views of the US Naval War College or the Department of the Navy. Um, I'm speaking in my personal capacity. And the other disclaimer is that I don't do tech. Um, I'm, I'm the manpower person on this, on this panel, so um, I, I will defer to my colleagues in terms of, of ideas about what technology is emerging um, and, and what it's likely to do. I do think that, uh, especially in terms of AI, as Kate mentioned, um, one of the areas in which I see AI really being a force multiplier is in the ability to sort through and analyze intelligence, right? One of the biggest issues that we have is, a, is an overabundance of information and one of the things that AI can do is help us get through that in a much more timely and potentially accurate manner than we can do right now. So in a sense, I think that's an opportunity not just to analyze intelligence, but also maybe to keep conflict at a lower level, right? If we can, as, as the first panel and the second panel discussed, maybe if we know more about what's going on, we can avoid or prevent some types of conflict um, that we might have gotten into otherwise. Um, that, that could go the other way, obviously. In terms of challenges, sort of what, what do I really worry about uh, with this? And I'll talk more about this, I'm sure, um, as we go on. Uh, one of the big things that moving to emerging technologies does is shift costs. Uh, shift the costs of conflict, shift the costs of activity from one set of people to another set of people. And so one of the things that I really worry about, especially as the US tries to invest in more and more of this technology, but also other countries, is that um, we might, the US in particular, uh, which already has a problem of getting itself into situations without um, a thorough strategic logic, 
might find the costs of those things going down and therefore get involved in even more of them without a thorough strategic logic. Uh, so I could see emerging technology actually enabling us to do more stupid things than we already do. Uh, well, thank you all again for being here today, and I want to thank the organizers for inviting us here. Um, that actually tees off really nicely from Lindsay's comment. Um, so I, I do a fair bit of work with U.S. Strategic Command, um, being in Nebraska and about 45 minutes away from them. And, and one of the sort of conversations that's evolving there is how emerging technology is fitting into traditional equations or calculations about deterrence. Um, and so I think the, the sort of, if I were to pinpoint the thing that keeps me up at night or one of the greatest challenges I think we're dealing with is um, sort of a broadening market of, of nefarious actors in the international system where the barriers to entry in terms of gaining capabilities or weapons or, or threats to the United States or other actors is significantly lowered. Um, and so to the event then, to the, to the um, possibility then that we have a broader range of actors that are threatening the U.S., that are threatening our allies, um, that really affects affects how we deal with deterrence and compellence. Um, and so one of the focus areas that I work on a lot is on extended deterrence or on alliance management. And one thing that really concerns me is that um, even though there is a great possibility for emerging technology to help with expanding our force projection, our ability to defend um, and deter more aggression across the world, that also comes with challenges with regard to our allies. Our allies might see some of those capabilities as not being quite as, um, as withstanding of, of changes in, in interest. Um, so you know, when we have submarines located in the Seventh Fleet, that's not... Um, that's, that's a very strong show of force, but other types of capabilities like drones or cyber warfare that might be used to help defend our allies might not be seen as so assuring. Um, so the thing that keeps me up at night is that we have many more actors engaging in many more different types of threats and our allies might feel less assured. Um, I think one opportunity that we then have is to consider how we can strategically employ some of these different capabilities to both affect um, uh, deterrence at home, but also help with alliance management abroad. So thinking through conversations with allies about what it would take to assure them more, more concretely, that's obviously a, a, a lengthy and difficult conversation. No ally is going to admit that they're assured or what it would take to assure them. But those types of conversations, thinking through how our adversaries consider the use of different types of capabilities abroad and what that might mean for deterrence. Um, and then I think lastly, involving more allies in conversations about U.S. force posture. Um, at the deterrent symposium at Stratcom every year, we've seen a declining number of allies actually come to those conversations, um, as we've also seen a declining number of adversarial states have representation at those conversations. So I think broadening the conversation, including discussions of what these capabilities can do, um, can help ease concerns about risk escalation and deterrence failure. Thank you. So I thought it was really interesting. We had some email exchanges as we were sort of prepping for this, and I, I thought it was interesting and great uh, that when I asked questions like, you know, which technology, you all sort of kind of said, eh, let's talk about how changing technology is changing the shape of warfare, is changing fundamental things in competition and conflict and crisis independently. All three of you kind of went there in terms of like, it's really not about the widgets and gadgets, it's about what's the, what's the space of conflict and crisis and how does this sort of impact that? So with that teaser out there, I'm actually gonna ask all three of you to kind of touch on that. How do you see the technical environment shaping the future of warfare and, and derived from that conflict and crisis um, and competition. And Rupal, maybe I'll start with you and then work my way back if that's okay. Um, so it's a little too early, late, I don't know, in the day for game theory, but um, I did some <laughs> game theory work when I was in graduate school. And, you know, as game theorists always like to admit, they don't want to deal in reality. And so they never want to talk about actual things happening on the ground. So I actually like to think about this problem in a similar way, which is that these capabilities are all part of a, a function, right, an equation about imposing costs on your adversary and reducing costs to yourself. Um, so to the extent then that emerging technology can do exactly that, make it easier to deter and harder uh, and easier to defend, um, I think we can actually gain some traction by thinking through um, 
not in a specific way about these technologies in isolation, but rather what they do in conjunction with both each other and also traditional kinetic tools that we've been relying on for the better half of the 20th century. Um, so I studied nuclear weapons, and so the, the sort of conversation I always come back to in my head is, how is this like the triad? How does this impact the actual traditional nuclear deterrence that we've relied on for the better half of the 20th century? What do these tools do in conjunction to or is substitutive of nuclear weapons? And I think in that way, it's not exactly about the tool, but it's about these sort of equations or calculations of deterrence and compellence, as well as just national defense that are, are sort of uh, are at the forefront of my thinking and a lot of the thinking that I've seen in the academic scholarship. Lindsay. Sure. Um, the, the question that I always ask when, when this issue comes up is, what are we fighting about? Um, and, and where is that fighting happening and who is fighting over these things? Um, and so I think Rebecca's question is, is a very good one in that um, if you start from the what's the technology we've got available and you might go very different places from if you start from the who's fighting and what are they fighting about and, and where are they doing that. Um, so I think that um, you know, we're, we're probably going to keep fighting about the same kinds of things we usually fight about, which uh, is resources, access to resources, access to strategic locations that can control the movement of resources and people and things like that. Um, and uh, so what can, what can new emerging technologies help us with in terms of those kinds of goals? Um, well, so uh, they can make us better able to pursue uh, target, immobilize, kill certain people more effectively. Um, they can destroy things to weaken certain groups' influence or capabilities. Um, they can help us maintain control of important spaces, right? If you can deploy a bunch of robots, that means you don't have to have people there, and that's, that's, uh, then it's easier to defend a bunch more places. But there are a lot of things that technology can't really help us do better, at least not that I've thought of, um, things like uh, constructing effective governance. I mean, if what you want is to be able to trade with people, then what you need is sort of law and order and the enforcement of contracts and stuff, and that, that doesn't, I, I haven't figured out how drones can do that yet. Um, you know, it, the other, the other idea that sometimes comes up is this sort of dystopian future idea where robots are colonializing, uh, um, you know, chaotic spaces, so, so they're sort of policing things. Uh, that's possible. I, I certainly can't think of anybody who wants to go there. Um, but I, I think that there are certain things that, that technology can help us do um, and as Rupal mentioned, one of the things that it does is allow new actors to enter the conflict arena who wouldn't have been able to do that before. Um, but in many ways, those actors' best strategies are not kinetic, right? They, they are in, in some other realm of influence. Um, and so I'm not entirely sure that, I, I'm, the, the hope is that more of this technology might actually reduce the amount of actual violent conflict going on because we'll move conflict to non-kinetic areas. But that, that may just be me being optimistic. So I see emerging technology opening up new ways to think about cooperation and competition. Um, so there's a lot of people you know, that think about uh, that think about how the United States can compete and dominate its adversaries, right? And there's, there's a, a, a place for that. And I, but I think um, the really interesting competitions for me are the ones between the defensive and the offensive applications of a particular technology. Um, so this is the case in terms of automation in network defense versus hacking. Um, it's the case in uh, deep fakes, which we could talk about you know, more uh, too. It's the same kinds of technologies that allow uh, us to represent people's voices and images in realistic ways doing things that they didn't. Similar technology you know, could be used to detect uh, and you know, prevent the, those from having significant impacts. So to me, um, it opens these new ways to cooperate with one another 
to advantage the defensive applications over the offensive applications, especially in areas like automated hacking that could be very destabilizing globally um, if more and more less sophisticated actors are able to do more sophisticated things. Well, you know, I, I want to actually, let's pull that thread a little bit more because I think this offense-defense issue is something that's of, of real interest to me. I'd actually flagged it to raise later. Um, and you went in an interesting thing. You're, you're sort of talking about how you might flip advantage from offense to defense and, and how that might favor us. I had been thinking of a slightly different way, and I like all of your reactions. You know, traditionally, I think most offense-defense races, the United States has been able to win. We've, we've, we've led on offense. Major introductions of new technologies, we've kind of always been on the, that edge. So the thing I was trying to figure out is, in this crowded, messy, lots of new technologies space, is that what's happening? Are we now dependent upon being able to flip and win at defense? because we're not going to always win the offense-defense race. Do you see what I'm saying? So that's an interesting twist. So both like, is that right, that you have to flip to defense, and what's the implication? But then related is, what is the future of that sort of offense-defense race, and are we going to lose that? Yeah. I guess more what I am saying is that it's, it's better for the world if the defensive applications win out. You know, I'm not really weighing in on is it better for the United States or, or, or not. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that's, that wasn't the analysis that I've done. But I mean, I think in, in certain areas, right, where the proliferation of offensive capabilities can be much broader, in the case of hacking tools, a lot of non-state actors, um, a lot of, uh, you know, mer mercenary hackers, sort of proxies. Um, them having a much stronger capability in cyberspace, I think, is just bad for the world in general. Um, so it's better for us to cooperate uh, on the defensive aspects. I see. So you're really saying kind of the overall, we'll better manage these technological transitions if defenses can keep up, regardless of who actually has them. Exactly. All right. Makes sense. I didn't think of that. Well, what do you think? Um, and, and what do you think about this idea of U.S. offense, defense, and, and how do you think that plays in? I think it matters whether you're talking about kinetic or non-kinetic technology. So I think on the kinetic side, um, the uh, emerging technology is absolutely benefiting the offense, right, in terms of, of proliferation. Right. Um, one of the things that the emerging technology does is allow you to send swarms of things, which is much harder to defend against physically. Um, but if you're talking about uh, and, and you know targeting and, and over the horizon capabilities and things like that, so I think uh, most of the emerging technology and on the kinetic side and. The other uh, panelists can obviously correct me if I'm wrong about this, um, is benefiting the, the offense. But I think if you're talking about the non-kinetic side, um, then you're talking about technologies that are not directly opposed to each other, right? Offense and defense in the kinetic world is if you shoot something at me, I need to try to stop that thing hitting me. In the non-kinetic world, cyber offense and cyber defense are not necessarily directly directly opposed to one another. So um, I think that there, there are opportunities to improve um, defensive capability uh, that, that are not necessarily uh, symmetrical, right? So that, um, and that's about as far as my technological knowledge allows me to say anything. Uh, so just building off of that, um, I think this this concept is actually absolutely right. I think in, in terms of the emerging technologies arm race, to a certain degree, the United States is lagging behind. So I had the privilege of reading the lengthy nuclear posture review this past year. Um, and when I was reading it, I was looking for instances of discussions about the U.S. investing in emerging technologies. Um, there's lots of discussions of cyber. There's lots of discussions of drones. Um, what's missing, and I think uh, critical to U.S. force posture, is a conversation about hypersonic glide vehicles, for example. Um, the Chinese and the Russians have been uh, 
developing this type of technology. They've actually been testing um, the DF-17 ballistic missile that has a superior conventional range, could be used for either a nuclear or conventional payload. Um, the United States has zero mentions of this in the Nuclear Posture Review, and even though this has been part of a, a conversation since a Bush administration about Global Prompt Strike Command, um, this is actually not something that we've been talking about recently. This is just one example, I think, about how the United States, despite having been predominantly a leader in terms of producing uh, technologies, especially in the kinetic realm, is somewhat dealing with things on the defense rather than on the offense. Um, the Chinese and the Russians have been modernizing their militaries. We have not been able to do that as to the same degree. On the non-kinetic side, I completely agree with Lindsay. I think one of the best advantages the United States has is almost reacting to some of these new technologies and developing some of our own. So again, in the nuclear context, um, the use of a cyber weapon against the Iranian centrifuge capability was actually really surprising. Oh, I should say alleged uh, use of a US cyber weapon against the Iranian centrifuge capability um, was, was sort of a, a game changer in terms of our uh, our sort of implementation and demonstration of this type of capability. I think we are taking the lead on some of those things in the non-kinetic realm. So, Lindsay, the same day we were having this exchange on email, and I thought you brought up this really important and interesting topic about the human interface with technology. I was driving home, and I heard on the radio this article about, uh, or the, this piece on, um, testing of um, autonomous vehicles. And in the course of the piece, they were talking about the incredible risk associated with semi-autonomous vehicles being tested because by introducing the human interface late, like you know, right before something goes wrong, that's like the worst, they all said. And it posited this interesting question of, you know, is it almost worse to be kind of semi-autonomous? You're like, where do you put that interface and how do you not make it more dangerous rather than less um, because you're trying to kind of plug that into that technology sequence? Does that make sense? Yeah, I thought that was fascinating. So I wanted to ask you about that um, and see what you think about, because you said that, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I, she, can, she can chime in. I told you when we started, you can chime in on anyone else's question. But seriously, this issue of the interface, I think, I, ha I know I hadn't been thinking about it enough. So can you talk about that a little bit? Sure, and this gets into uh, the differences between sort of automated systems, autonomous systems, uh, and, and uh, so we're working on uh, several of these. Um, the, the artificial intelligence side of things would be systems that learn by themselves. And the way that that works with automated vehicles as well as with, with military applications is that the system has to go through the experience multiple times. And every time it goes through the experience, it learns something new and it's supposed to get better and better. Um, so what that means, of course, is that you have to put it through uh, a lot of, of practice before it ever gets to a point that it that you can sort of send it off to college on its own, and uh, that technology, at least to my knowledge, and again, this is not something that I would necessarily be read in on, um, is not something that the military is currently doing a lot with. The uh, most of the stuff that the military is currently working with is semi-autonomous systems that have a person involved um, that can sort of. So like, uh, for example, there's a, there's a sailboat, um, not a Navy sailboat, it's a, it's a private uh, thing, but there's a sailboat that can sail around the ocean all by itself and collect data. Um, and normally you would need people sailing a sailboat, uh, but this one doesn't need people, but it's not doing it um, on its own intelligence, it's doing it on a set of algorithms designed by human beings to say this is how you sail a boat given these conditions. Um, from what I understand, what the, what the military is working with right now is more of that type of thing, more of the algorithm-based thing. And then, then you have all of the usual problems of like, well, did people come up with the right algorithm? Did they, did they do it really well? Did they think of all the possible contingencies? Those are all the problems that AI is supposed to help you with. Um, but from what I understand, we're not really at the point yet where we can uh, design or test uh, 
uh, truly autonomous systems. And so what we've got is systems that we want to automate, but if they're just automated, we want a person to sort of have an eye on what they're doing and be like, oh, hey, uh, this is a situation that we did an algorithm for, so let me jump in and tell this thing what to do. Um, and yes, uh, that is usually uh, a, a difficult situation to deal with because you've got a system that thinks it's supposed to be doing this and then a human being that's just jumping into the situation and thinks it should be doing that and no one's quite sure what happens when you mix those two things together. Um, and it, you know, it might be completely harmless. It might just be your, your little automated submarine running into a rock, but it, it, could, be, it could be really bad. Um, I think those technologies will improve exponentially, you know, quickly. Um, but as of right now, uh, I think the um, you know you've got you've got remotely piloted vehicles that are just a, a human being running the system far away, and then you've got vehicles that are running by themselves but with a human kind of checking on them, and then you've got this idea that eventually we'll be able to send things out there that that are just doing their own thing, um, and I'm not. Uh, I mean, what I could really talk about is what happens to the people in the organization that are supposed to be running these things. I don't really know very much about where we are in the development of, of which of those things we're going to rely on the most. So I'm not at all surprised that semi-autonomous systems introduce additional problems at the interface. Um, kind of two, two thoughts. One is in the context of autonomous vehicles, you know, you want to look at the, the why, right? I imagine a lot of the why is because people weren't paying attention and they weren't trained to deal with the situation in a really heavy way. So if you kind of take that lesson and put it into a military context, you know, you just need to dig into the why and see if that can be fixed through other, you know, uh, in other contexts. Um, and, uh, and I also, but, and second point, I mean, I think that it's a transitory phase, right, especially for autonomous vehicles, domestically cars. Um, I think that part of the reason they, we have semi-autonomous setups is that people don't yet fully trust uh, the car to be, uh, to be safe. Um, and I think that over time and over experience, that'll change. Um, and so that semi-autonomous uh, zone will move towards fully autonomous, at least in the domestic applications. I think the principle that kind of came up in the article but would apply certainly in military context is that um, it's, it's really about reaction time. And so if you introduce that human element, for example, after what could be a very short time frame, you know, whether it's the car is about to hit something or you're at the moment when the weapon is supposed to fire, you're in kind of a very shrunk amount of time, and then whatever in your brain gives you that extra little bump of, oh, I was watching this, or oh, I've been engaged, you have to you lose that those nanoseconds to kind of that quick get up to speed, and therefore you're really compromised in terms of reaction time. I think that's kind of the principle, which I think is sort of you know, an interesting idea as we, as we look at this and think about the man in the loop you know, in all of those man-in-the-loop type questions, but I think that we can, we can kind of stew on that a little bit. Um, I'd like to go back to something practical. Um, obviously, this is a huge wave of the future. You said we're at a critical moment. You know, we're at a transit, you've both, all of you have kind of alluded, we're at a sort of this transitional phase where we're trying to figure out how are we gonna absorb the amount of change coming our way. Um, and so when I think about that, you know, when you have either a problem or at least a, a huge opportunity by way of technology, what are we doing to kind of prepare collectively for that, and what are the obstacles to the kind of progress we want to make? You know, is it in the resources? You know, are we spending the right amount of money in the right places? Is it kind of in organization? Are we structured organizationally the right way? Um, have we, you know, organized people around the problem correctly? Um, or is the fundamental problem still, you know, or challenges or opportunities in the idea space, the concepts, the, the way we think about the problem? Um, you don't have to choose. You can pick one of the three. Um, but uh, try to use some concrete examples uh, from any one of those of what you think um, stands in our way between here and where we might want to be. Well, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, 
So this is something that I think is on the minds of a lot of academics like myself that are trying to think through what are the next new frontiers for both research and also the, the threats. And I actually, I think, not to call on all of those things, but I actually think that they're all really important to understanding why there's been um, a lack of sort of development on, the, on these fronts, at least in, in the academic world. Um, we have traditional notions of organization and bureaucracy um, that are primarily based on Cold War thinking uh, about how organizations are actually structured. And organizations have been, um, again, I, I work a lot with the military, and so to, to my sense, there's been an adapt adaptation about how they actually function and structure themselves, and we're sort of slow to understand what that looks like. Um, I do think that there has been a resource constraint in terms of funding R&D, in terms of getting new thinkers. One of, some of my students always say that they think the biggest problem that the US is facing is that um, there is a well, I don't know the appropriate term these days, but there's a, you can't smoke pot and I guess work for um, cyber command or do any cyber work. And so they think that if young people were allowed to bypass that requirement, we actually would have a stronger cyber cadre of, of young people working on these issues. I don't know if this is true or not, um, but I, I think that some of the traditional ways of thinking about what the tools are and what we need to accomplish or remedy some of these problems might be a little outdated. Um, I think one of the other big things that we're struggling with these days is understanding the perspective of the adversary. Um, there's been a lot of great work about misperception and perception by Bob Jervis and many, many, many others. Um, but I think this is still missing from our understandings about how people actually work. Um, I had the fortune of speaking with some Iranian uh, military officials when I was in Vienna last year doing some field work. Um, and it's some basic things about our understanding about Iranian political structure, about the de decision-making behind the JCPOA, about the nuclear deal, is at odds with what American academics, scholars like myself, think about some of these questions. So I think better understanding how adversaries, such as Iran, such as Russia, such as China, are actually operating and thinking about the inclusion of military technology, emerging technologies, um, these are opportunities for us to sort of grow, but I think this is some of the problems that we're facing in addition to resource uh, constraints, organizational inertia, um, and some of the others. Thank you. Um, so I'll just uh, touch on sort of one aspect of this um, that I particularly focus on, which is um, how do you recruit and retain the people that you need to be able to do these things in a military that looks more and more like what we've been talking about. Um, and at least in the United States context, that is going to be increasingly difficult because, um, so quick labor market uh, <laughs> primer. Um, anytime you need people with skills that require a significant amount of personal investment in terms of time or foregone income or actually going into debt to get those skills, um, the only way that that is rational for an individual to do is if there is a large payoff on the other end. In other words, if you can expect a high income. The government is obviously constrained in what incomes it can pay people. The only, uh, the only way it can get around those constraints is to hire co contractors, right, is to contract with a firm that can then pay their own employees whatever they want. But, you know, that money has to come from somewhere. Um, so I, I think there are... If we posit that the American military of the future is going to need lots of people who are able to deal with these kinds of systems, or even just able to deal with significantly more complex weapons systems, um, then, uh, then what we are looking at is a situation where you've got a couple of options, right? You, um, you either use contractors, right, uh, or you use... Um, or you offer sort of free or subsidized skills training for the kinds of things that you want people to do, but it can't be just for the military, right? You can't have a program where like, if you join the military, we'll train you to do this, because then you've got huge retention problems, the same way you do with pilots um, and, and other skilled people. It would have to be across the board, government subsidized skills training for coding and, and whatever other skills you needed. I don't see the US government doing that. Um, so, you know, your, your other option is uh, immigrant labor. Right, your, your other option, and, and the U.S. already does this to a certain extent, but not with um, 
The highly skilled people that we try to get uh, through immigration tend to be translators, not tech people. We could do that, right? We, the US currently, uh, we allow uh, immigrants to serve in the enlisted ranks and offer them citizenship on the other end. We had, for a brief time, an officer program as well, which I think has just recently been shut down. Um, but we can do that. Other countries will need to start thinking about that too. Other countries tend to be um, uh, a lot more restrictive on who can serve in their militaries, um, but they may need to start thinking about doing that. Um, the, the other option, uh, and uh, Olga referred to this on the very first panel this morning, and I was like, darn it, she took my whole talking point. Uh, the other option is um, what, uh, I don't want to call them mercenaries, but you know, hire people on site. Um, if you want to fight in SpaceX, hire people there who have those skills and have them do it. Um, so none of these options is, is really politically appealing to Americans, and all of them include, again, making the costs of doing nasty things less visible to the American public, uh, which makes it more likely that the government will do these things without a real reckoning of whether it's a good idea and whether it's worth it. I see two really big obstacles. So one is that uh, forecasting is really hard right now. I think the last two books that I've read on artificial intelligence by our AI experts at the like, top of their field had four words that were added that said, whoops, we had no idea how fast it was going to go, um, whether it's uh, uh, you know, um, AI Go players beating humans or in image recognition. So I think we're just in a place right now where forecasting and understanding the different applications of te emerging technology that we're going to see and have to deal with is um, relatively quite poor right now. Um, and second, I think that uh, we are going to face a real obstacle in our ability to judge risk of any particular action. Um, I think you, we don't have enough experience, even in cyberspace operations, to have a really mature sense of what is the risk of this. Um, uh, or an example in the AI space is if you see you know, swarm, swarm drones not being able to understand the risk of how they might interact and how that might go wrong. Um, so uh, I'd say that's, that's you know, a, a recipe either for paralysis and inaction or making decisions that aren't properly informed by risk. Terrific. Well, I have, I have one last question. Um, and, uh, and Kate, you kind of alluded to this early on, but I think it's also in particular part of Lindsay's background, but I'd love to hear from RuPaul as well. But, you know, I come from the old-fashioned sort of WMD world, you know, bio and chem and nuke, and there's a pretty sort of structured international set of systems for managing behavior. Um, highly imperfect, but relatively well understood and defined. Um, and when I think about, so what's arms control, non-proliferation, norm building, all of those things that structure um, and, and restrain behavior. When I look out at these technologies, you have so many challenges in terms of um, managing them in terms of laws of armed conflict, in terms of uh, norms and restraints and taboos, um, in terms of what rules of the road, um, all of those types of things. What will sort of dictate behavior for these emerging technologies? Do you see any promising approaches? Do you think it's being talked about enough? If not, you know, where might you steer those conversations? Um, but I just, I think um, warfare really is actually a behavior managed space most of the time, and we just don't think about it. Um, how are we gonna manage that going forward? Do we have some catch up to do? Um, I'll start with you, Kate, and then we'll, we'll go down the line. Sure, so on the cyber side, um, there's a long effort to develop formal voluntary norms of responsible behavior through the UN. Um, that has uh, essentially kind of petered out. Um, but in my mind, right, those are the big end norms, and there's also little end norms. Of, you know, your be the behavior and how you act, setting expectations for what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. So I think that some of the steps that have been taken recently to name and shame 
um, you know, the Russians for intrusions in critical infrastructure, um, the North Koreans for, you know, some of the global malware. Um, that has no effect in and of itself, but if you start building out a big group of international, um, you know, coalition um, who are pointing the finger and saying this is unacceptable, you start to develop some of those expectations of what is and is not um, acceptable. Lindsay. Okay, so uh, again, I think there needs to be a distinction between kinetic technologies and non-kinetic technologies. In the kinetic realm, um, you know, the laws of armed conflict deal decently well with those kinds of things, although um, when, again, when you start talking about things that can be used at a level um, that doesn't quite look like an armed attack, um, then you start having issues of, of, of whether you can respond in, in certain ways and what, what counts as proportional when, um, when actor A attacked this thing of yours and he doesn't have one of those so you can't attack his thing back, you have to attack something else. Difficulties come up in terms of what counts as proportional response uh, when you get to that or what counts as a military target. But these are not new problems. We've been having those kinds of problems for a long time. Um, I think uh, we, we have mechanisms for talking about them. I think everyone's interested in at least talking about them, even if they're not interested in coming to the same conclusion. When you get to the non-kinetic stuff, though, the cyber, um, that one's been uh, really difficult. Uh, so not in the not in the realm of coming up with international norms for what is okay and what is not okay in the cyber realm, but so for example, in, in the uh, context of NATO, trying to determine when, uh, when disruption of your internal functioning counts as an attack on your society that, that deserves collective defense, they haven't, I mean, they, they've come up with a document that says that they have an answer to that question, but they don't have an answer to that question. Um, and I think that we, uh, you know, to get back to, again, what the first panel was talking about, we really have to revisit some, some concepts of what it means to defend yourself as a state. Um, I definitely still think states are really important. Uh, they they um, embody jurisdiction uh, for domestic law and things like that, um, but they also need to be able to have um, a, an up-to-date concept of what it means to protect themselves. Um, and, you know, the, the traditional international legal system really has something to say about that only when the, uh, when the incursion is physical. Um, so, I mean, I'm not saying anything that anyone in this room has not thought about, but I think it, it's worth putting out there that that conversation is happening only in isolated pockets. That's not a conversation that the UN is having right now. And so um, that, I think, would be important and necessary to have. Thank you. RuPaul, I think I want you to chime in, but also I think Lindsay raised a point that I think you've given some, some thought to, which is the cross-domain aspect of this. So we typically also, when you think about establishing kind of behavior-conforming, you know, in a behavior-conforming environment in some way, it tends to be inside a domain. Um, that feels less like the world. So how do you do that when you're looking across, you know, the cyber inter interface with Nuke, the, you know, uh, all of these other sort of technical domains coming together, that cross-domain, I hate that term, but, can you kind of add that to the to the answer? And then get ready, because I'm coming to you next. Um, so unfortunately, um, I'm a bit of a pessimist about a lot of this stuff, in part because I think we've seen so many instances of treaties, alliances, our agreements been violated over the course of their existence. So I'm not particularly um, sort of uh, excited or thrilled about what comes next. Um, and I think this is exacerbated by a couple of problems, one of which is that for a lot of this emerging technology, there's a real hesitation to reveal the extent of it, in part because that can impede um, its efficacy. Um, there's concerns about revealing the, the source, the origin, the um, attribution, a lot of sort of important parts to capabilities that 
were known about nuclear weapons or about chemical weapons um, to, to some degree, um, that becomes a lot harder when we're talking about emerging technology, especially like cyber weapons. No one wants to reveal their full capability in part because that damages the, the efficacy that it might have. So in, in to that sense, I'm, I'm concerned about creating a set of rules when we don't really know what's on the table. Uh, we knew in the INF Treaty what missiles range looked like. I don't think we really know about what cyber range or uh, its yield, uh, so to speak, can look like. Um, I think this is exacerbated, again, by the fact that we're not really operating in a world in which we're only acting in one domain. There's been some really exciting new research coming out by colleagues of Lindsay's and others across the country that have been looking about um, looking at how the use of a tool in one domain might incite or uh, yield um, a response in another domain. This is This is pretty usual stuff um, to, a, to a lot of people. Um, and I think the concern that we have there is that, again, this is shifting the, the game a little bit. We don't really know um, whether or not a cyber attack on a U.S. infrastructure grid would incite a conventional or nuclear or other type of response. And to some degree, unless it's done, uh, we don't really know how we're going to respond to it. And I think um, that, to me, is the other big concern, is that use is going to probably um, incite a, a desire to s create norms or create rules or conform people to some of these existing guidelines. And that's obviously very dangerous. We don't actually want these things to be used. Um, but I think that's what's going to potentially prompt a new set of directions. I'm not uh, entirely um, optimistic about that either. I guess one one silver lining or one thing I will say that could be good is that we are developing some of these conversations. We're starting to have conversations with other countries in the international system that are developing these capabilities about how to think through um, the use of satellites or anti-satellite technology in space, um, the use of um, uh, new types of technologies um, in the seas. I think this is a conversation that is ongoing. Um, it's slow going, obviously, with a lot of these other treaties, but I think Unfortunately, I think what will prompt a more rapid response is going to be the use of something like this, either against the United States or one of our allies, in which we're going to have to start thinking through how we're going to respond and what that might look like. Thank you. Kate had an alibi, but also get ready with your hands. Oh. So I had one additional thought, which is um, people aren't talking enough about the just incredible positive potential of biotechnology in the next century. And there are organizations out there, like legitimate organizations, that are setting goals of curing or managing all disease by the end of the century, right? Or um, uh, huge agricultural opportunities uh, coming from synthetic biology. Um, so one thing I would like to see in the norms conversation and where we have an opportunity on the biotechnology side is really root in the positive potential and talking and understanding how much is to be lost if we misuse this technology and prompt some kind of backlash or you know pullback or restriction uh, that inhibits the um, the really uh, um, incredible potential that it has. Yeah, that's a great point. Please join me in thanking our panelists. Thank you for listening. For more information, go to CSIS.org and subscribe to our podcasts.